Hey, it's News From Nowhere. I'm Corey Pine. Two interviews this week. Got repeat guest Michael Brooks, co-host of The Majority Report, and Two Dope Boys and a Podcast at Majority.fm. We'll be talking about tankies and Trump. Also, Elmo Keep, Australian journalist covering the Americas, was in New York, now is in coastal Mexico. Uh, Elmo's uh, really smart and funny, and you can keep up with her work, including a pretty entertaining piece about the life extension movement in the Smithsonian Magazine through her website at elmokeep, that's E-L-M-O-K-E-E-P dot com. Had some requests to talk about tech, talk about my book, which is uh, in edits. It's called Live, Work, 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 Die. It'll be out uh, sometime in the next... 9 to 12 months from Metropolitan Books, from Metropolitan Books. Also had some requests to mention that on this program. I'm not a marketing natural. Anyway, they're both really good conversations. So I'll spare you the editorial this week. Let's see what Michael's up to. This is going to be out for another week or so, and I don't want this news to get buried. President Donald Trump turns 71 today. Big deal. Tremendous birthday. How are you celebrating? I'm kind of on vacation, so I was celebrating by not knowing until you told me. Uh... (laughs) So thanks, man. Uh, no, I uh, I understand in some respects the impulse to say, like, of course, like Trump is awful, but like, you know, put the sort of smelling salts away because the whole system is awful. You know, we're, we're this imperialist colossus eating up the earth, destroying the safety net and, you know, maintaining a system of global, you know, plunder and repression. And, you know, I tend to agree with that in a lot of ways. Yeah, I'm with you. But but uh, no, he's much worse, and, <laughs> and it's a real, real escalation. Anybody that's lived with a psychotic narcissist would recognize that we're now all trapped in his mind. Exactly. That's what psychotic narcissists do. I mean, they, they, they draw you into their insanity, and you can't escape. But, you know, because Trump can tweet it, he can write the world's headlines when on a whim. So we are all trapped in his pathology. Actually, I asked a woman I know who's a psychotherapist, but I was like, you know, you have people who've dealt with, uh, I don't know, an abusive husband. And she said, yeah, like everybody I'm seeing is in like a heightened state of anxiety. And what's really hard is like, you know, they're right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yes, there's personal psychopathologies, but like there's also just a lot of like, Yes, you're in a state of anxiety because you're like destroying the Earth's operating systems, you know, like or your job is terrible and this whole sort of, you know, economic systems destroying your whole, you know, your immune system. The last guy with this kind of level of psychopathology was president was probably Nixon and Nixon was a hell of a lot more intelligent and had a sense of like history and his place in it. You know, obviously he held it together quite a bit better. Well, but, yeah, yeah, he's much yeah. more strategic, much more intelligent. I mean, obviously, he's self-medicated with alcohol, but uh, right, you know, maybe if Trump had had some recourse to chemical assistance, he, we'd all be a little bit better off. Insane from all the drugs he hasn't done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm going to celebrate his birthday by thinking about my enemies obsessively, eat, <laughs> eating double cheeseburgers for every meal, <laughs> washing it down with a well-done steak. And like a, a bucket of ketchup. ketchup. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's 
So a guy asked me, a friend of mine, he goes, I get he's terrible, but is he really like this vacuous and hollow? I said, like, do you think he has trouble? Does he ever like have trouble sleeping at night? And I said, yeah, I mean, probably. But it's just like indigestion. Yes. And chaos. Heartburn. There's <laughs> no, like, just no, he's not because anything is happening. It's just, he's just disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> His body and his wit is such a perfect representation of just how utterly grotesque he is. He's like a walking, like, fast food depot. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just disgusting. You know? it's, it's American Psycho, like the golden years. Okay, what's your problem with tankies? My problem with tankies is I don't think that the whole world can just simply be understood through the filter of reacting against U.S. misdeeds, period. Watching that tendency kind of explode in certain segments of the left is really fucked up because, you know, I think that we – the best we can do is look for – and try to practice some form of international solidarity, right? And, you know, obviously, like, in the UK, that's pretty easy. We, we you know, we support Jeremy Corbyn and support the left. Um, in other places, it's a lot more complicated. But, you know, even, like, in Syria, why, why would your eyes not be on, like, Kurdish socialists instead of, like, Assadist neo-fascists is a bit perplexing to me how are you defining tankies because my understanding basically shorthand for somebody that would defend you know joseph stalin's policies in the ussr line completely now that stalin is a figure of the history books and there is no soviet union what does that word really mean i guess what I, I guess the way i'm applying it is i think it's just come to a general blunt instrument stupidity in talking about foreign policy basically the view that anything that counters u.s imperial power is to be supported yes Yes. And there is and there is a weird fixation with Russia. I mean, I I do think I always say that Russia seems to make everybody stupid. There's the alt center obsession with Russia. There's the Eric Garland, Louise Minch, you know, but there is this other I guess the easy shorthand for it. Now, I've been watching the Oliver Stone interviews with Vladimir Putin, and I actually would recommend that people watch them. Putin thought that Bush pulling out of the ABM treaty through the whole international security system and the chaos. And I think he's right about that. People who would parse and not believe anything that any U.S. official said about anything, then to sit down and watch like an autocrat kind of conservative who leads another country say like, hey, we didn't interfere in the election and be like, oh, he said it. I don't understand what people don't understand. It's like, well, I guess like every other head of state, he probably lies. <laughs> So why wouldn't you believe that about him? It's a- I think I see what you're saying, that there's like a certain personality type that can only express itself politically through total identification with a leader. And yes. there's a segment on the left that has transferred that fixation to people like Putin who aren't even... They're not even he, on the left. No, he's, he's, he's basically like a... He's, he's, he's like a... Yeah. Also, the the identification with Putin or the sort of RT perspective, I can also see where that comes from. We are a heavily propagandized society. So when you get a foreign perspective that presents you with information that you didn't know that upsets that narrative and you know instinctively that something is wrong, I think people latch on to that because it validates their suspicions. This is, this is a hard 
needle to thread. I think we need to be careful about idealizing and demanding any kind of perfection in politics. I think what we need is we need to be quite assured and clear in our convictions. Our convictions are like, you know, actually very basic. Everybody needs health care. Um, you know, we need to radically uh, redistribute wealth, you know, deal with the climate, redesign, you know, whatever area we're talking about, redesign the international system, have real enforceable, you know, codes or norms or law, whatever. I mean, we can debate the specifics, but you kind of get what I'm saying, you know, with regards to foreign policy, obviously in the big picture, the neoconservative fantasy about the world or the neoliberal one are, are a bigger threat and influence than the tankies because they actually have power. But the problem is, is that you're destroying opportunities for solidarity. You're propping up crimes and obscenities abroad. It isn't a left narrative. It's, it's a conspiracy narrative. It's a apology for just another form of aggression imperialism, which is Russia's narrative. Playing devil to advocate with the Pankies yeah. here. Yeah. There's nostalgia for a time when Russia's contribution to philosophy, culture, all of it was equal to or, or surpassing the Western European powers. Also at a time uh, in the earlier decades of the Soviet Union when the left was making credible demands for the reorganization of society that you still can't even really talk about. Like, right. it's great that right. we have Bernie Sanders out there, but he's not talking about seizing the means of production. And that's a conversation right. that should probably be happening more. Yep. And, yeah, of course. you know, the tankies are, are harking back to a time when it was possible to have those conversations and be taken seriously all around. Yeah, but they're not by... going to be taken seriously if they're it's it's not helpful to be delusional about what the Soviet Union was, right? Like it, it was a essential. I mean, it was a massive empire that engaged in its own forms of exploitation, human rights abuses, bureaucratic dictatorship, everything else, right? I don't, and I don't think anybody. That's just not a particularly credible thing to debate. But the actual moment and time of the Russian Revolution itself could be affirmed as something liberatory and extraordinary in its moment. But I think the other the other kind of differences are that, you know, if you're making these arguments at a time when it's not clear or publicly understood the extent of Stalin's crimes, right? That's a different thing. What you're saying is basically now that we have the benefit of hindsight, use it. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and also that and also that the other thing that's quite important now and I'll just speak crudely from like a branding perspective, you know, moving forward, the conversations about socialism and really radically reorganizing the economy and whatever that's going to look like, it's actually a very future oriented conversation. I don't think that we should be on the side of the politics of any kind of nostalgia. And that actually manifests itself really clearly in foreign policy as well. Vladimir Putin, as I say, is, I think, right when he talks about how reckless the United States has been, particularly with regards to things like missile defense and arms control and how that's kind of undermined the architecture going back to the, you know, the 70s of kind of cooling the, the nuclear issue, right, which is pretty still pretty foundational thing, which we never talk about. But at the same time, I also think that, you know, he's someone who and again, I understand why this appeals to a certain person type on the left, because he says, look, all of these things, whether it's the UN or NATO or international law, like 
it's all just dressed up legal bullshit. And I get that. There's a lot of truth to that. At the same time, building the first steps and increments of some type of international system that is more built on some type of international obligations and recognition is better than just purely going back to like a mercantile state interest system. You know, that's the conversation with NATO and Europe. I understand that NATO is an arm for, you know, American interests and that other states are off in NATO or vassals for that interest in many ways. But I also get that what, you know, Russia basically wants, does want to have like a natural gas pipeline chokehold on Western Europe. And it certainly wants to assert its sphere of influence in Eastern Europe. And this security umbrella has been part of the reason that the EU, until it self-detonated with austerity for all of its hypocrisy and all of its flaws and all of its bullshit, did produce societies that relatively speaking are kind of, you know, the highest achieving in the world today in terms of like, social investment. And I don't think that that's the end point, but I think it's delusional to not recognize that that's a form of progress. So do we want to like transcend and evolve out of NATO and this particular Western order into something better? Or do we want to devolve back into like early 20th century or mid 20th century or 19th century, just like pure power politics. I mean, maybe it'll be less bullshit if we go into pure power politics, but it's not going to be a pleasant world to have a bunch of mid-rank regional powers viciously competing across Africa and Asia for what little remains of natural resources. Like, that's not progress. You know, there... It might be diminished <laughs> yeah. in the United States, but it's not progress. It's it's true. You know, I want to hit on the... You mentioned the future versus the past. You know who... Uh, was writing about that in a really compelling way before they took power and kind of cocked it up was Giannis Varoufakis. I mean, he was writing yes. really yep. thought-provoking stuff about how, so. how the left needs to figure out the new abilities that tech gives us and, you know, wrest control of that from the corporations. My concern with futurism talk is it's dominated entirely by tech companies. And yes. they, as we've seen, I think, are incredibly likely to steer anything political in their sphere into a reactionary direction. I mean, it's just how they're built. They're, I think, they're profit machines, just like Goldman Sachs. I agree completely. When I talk about the future, I guess what I might add, I've been kind of banging on about CLR James, Trinidadian historian, brilliant theorist, sports journalist. I mean, truly, truly kind of like really exceptional figure. You know, his book, Black Jacobins, kind of in some ways arguing that the Haitian revolutionaries were the purest expression of the French Revolution because the deepest zones of, rep of repression have the kind of highest commitment to those ideals, true universal equality and emancipation. When I say the future, maybe it's also a lot of currents and places that we have not uh, focus. I think there's also a lot of areas and a lot of kind of hidden and illicit sort of histories and ideas that come from every zone of the planet that have not been fully explored or executed. That is also part of that kind of future talk, in my view. And that also circles some of the squares of this supposed conflict between class and race and gender. You've given me the idea I need to get somebody on to talk about the Dalit movement. Uh, yes. in India. It ties all that stuff together and it's contemporary. Anyway, man, I gotta jump. I got another interview right. to do. Nice right. talking. My pleasure, as always, Corey. 
That was Michael Brooks. Now let's talk to Elmo Keep, who is one of the smartest writers I know on subjects like the politics of the tech industry, futurism, transhumanism, and general Silicon Valley weirdness. Elmo, hello. Hey, Corey. How you doing? It's okay. How are you? Uh, I am a little hungover. <laughs> uh, so you're in Mexico City? No, no, no. I'm in Puerto Escondido in Mexico, which is in Oaxaca, in the state of Oaxaca, and it's down on the coast. So it's like a little surf town where I live. So I just forwarded you an email that I got randomly. Okay, let Uh, me just see this. It's from a guy named Jake Weigler. Oh, here we go. This is a press release that I got randomly, and since we both like to talk shit about tech companies, I thought this would just be a fun thing (laughs) to throw into the mix, because it it was serendipitous. Amazon announced a career retraining program. They pay 95% of tuition costs for employees to pursue courses in in in-demand fields, regardless of relevancy to jobs at Amazon. Uh, And now they have classrooms on site at, I guess, their warehouses. Wow. So this is how they're preparing their workforce for being automated out of jobs. Yeah. That's that's the quick take. There's another, there's a, a page on Amazon's website, the Career Choice Program, which is really kind of funny because to call it that, and it's targeting your own employees, it, it sort of it concedes that they would choose any other career than working their current job. Than working at Amazon. Yeah. It says, we want to make it easier for Amazonians, oh God, to pursue their aspirations, but it can be difficult in this economy to have flexibility and financial resources to teach yourself new skills. And then it says, after they've been employed by Amazon for as little as one continuous year, it'll pay their tuition. So, how many... That's kind of amazing. How many Amazon workers in the warehouse side make it to a continuous year of employment, I wonder? Yeah, who doesn't just get like physically exhausted to the point where they, they can't do that job anymore? The other thing is... When it says it can be difficult in this economy to have flexibility and financial resources to go to school, I mean, who created this? This is the Amazon economy, isn't it? I mean, isn't it just crazy for them to to blame things on the economy when they're one of the main beneficiaries of the economy as it's structured today? I know, and that one of the one of the the primary drivers of it. It's like maybe they're trying. This is their way now of trying to head off uh, the incredible. You know, they've suffered so much, deserved terrible PR over the way that they treat their employees and over their corporate culture. And maybe this is something quite conceivably as a result of like an internal, you know, review. How can we do right by our people? Oh, we'll equip them to leave Amazon. (laughs) If they can can stick it out with us for a year first. So maybe we're going to start seeing like the companies, these companies aren't, interested in ceasing operations or changing their culture they're just trying to change their public perception through these kinds of programs which is like what's happening with uber like they're right now after this firestorm of shit that's come out about how terrible they are corporately it's not doing anything like these changes that are being proposed now the war room is the peace room and so now we've fixed everything (laughs) it's like no you still have this insanely predatory business model I don't understand how people could be suckered by PR like that. But as with, you know, it's working with Uber, it seems, or at least it was, uh, you know, for them to focus on fixing their internal problem with sexism seems to have 
consumed all of their concerns that people had in that company or about that company into that one issue, which now that they've fired their CEO is like, look, we're, we're addressing it. But the much bigger problem with Uber, as with Amazon, is the effect that they're having throughout the world, essentially dragging down wages. Yeah, exactly. Dragging down wages, destroying unions, making sure that people can't collectivize. Uh, these business, it's like there's there's great writing about it at the moment on um, Alphaville, like coming out of the, the UK about just how unfeasible Uber's entire business model is. Like it's completely subsidized to the tune of billions of dollars a year. And the only way that they could possibly ever miraculously switch that out and somehow become profitable is to get everybody so dependent on Uber, which they have done a great job at so far, that then it's so much a part of people's everyday lives that they have no choice but to say, oh, and now it's triple the cost of what it was, or maybe it's quadruple the cost of what it was, but I need it so badly that I'm willing and have to and will pay that money in order to maintain the service. And then you're starting to get a turnaround on something that is a loss-making business proposition, which is the Amazon model, to be a loss-making proposition with the very long-term strategy of just crushing everyone else. So yeah. it doesn't matter that you've spent 20 years in arrears. Your bigger goal of literally monopolizing entire industries, in the case of Amazon, is then going to pay enormous dividends when you have zero competition. And this is like just the rational endpoint of capitalism as we're living under it. <laughs> you know, the one company that does everything for you that sets the prices of not only products but the price of labor it's really it seems almost satirical but that's where it's heading yes and that it's been allowed to happen that you know this this absolute bullshit fantasy of markets being self-regulating which was always a lie which was a lie from the outset has resulted in this sort of nearing dystopia that we're living in especially for workers i mean like i put in this um in the Smithsonian story that I uh, just published about Silicon Valley's quest for immortality, you know, incredibly wealthy people with disposable incomes, able to care about something as elusive and pointless as becoming immortal. And I mean, <laughs> you know, Silicon Valley getting around to all of these Tony suburbs to interview these people. And I'm taking Lyft to get everywhere because I didn't want to drive in San Francisco. I'm not going to lie freaking hate driving in American cities. I feel like the closest times I've come to dying in my life have all been in cars in America. So I was like, no, not going to drive that. I will take Lyft, not Uber, and I'm going to do it that way. So, I, you know, my Lyft driver picked me up and one of the, the several Lyft drivers picked me up and, you know, she was in such dire financial straits that she was homeless and she was living in the car. Like oh, my she'd God. She'd taken a loan out through Lyft She'd taken I'm sure the financing terms loan. are wonderful. They absolutely, exactly, were just screwing her. And so if you don't make a certain amount of rides per week as a part of that payment structure, you get penalised $200 a week. Where is any kind of regulatory structure in the United States that makes something as predatory as that illegal? So this email that I forwarded you, is from a guy who is one of the top political consultants in Oregon. Uh, you had David Pluff, right, go work for Uber. I mean, the tech, com yeah. the tech companies are like, to the Democrats, what the oil companies are to the Republicans. Uh, that's obviously why nothing is happening on that front. 
Right. Anyway, so you got dropped off in in some what, like outside some mansion in Palo Alto or something? Oh yeah, and then, and then you're in there, and then you're in like you know Palo Alto around the, the corner from Palantir's offices, and like the discrepancy of this world couldn't have been more in your face. Like here are the companies who come up with these business ideas who are reaping billions in profit. Here's the person who actually has to work as a labourer under the system, and they're in penury because of it. I was just found it really confronting. Yeah, okay, spend hundreds of millions of dollars on the possibility of curing neurodegenerative disease. Absolutely. Like, there's a lot of work that's being done to try and understand Alzheimer's, to try and understand dementia, which we're at such infancy in trying to understand and really don't know shit about how our brains are, are degrading. That's a really worthy pursuit because ultimately that's going to improve the lives of millions of people because we're going to have this huge elderly population soon and the amount of money on Alzheimer's alone is well in excess of billion dollars. It's going to be going that way on healthcare. So there is definitely a moral argument for pursuing these therapies. But then there's this like really strange cognitive leap that Peter Thiel particularly loves to take from there, which is that, okay, so if you say yes to a therapy that intervenes in Alzheimer's or cancer, then surely you also say yes to a therapy that intervenes in the actual process of aging itself. And that's like the reasoning. That's the reasoning that they use. That it's like, well, obviously you say yes to curing cancer. Obviously you say yes to Alzheimer's. Obviously you say yes to never dying. I'm like, wow. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) If that's appealing to you to be an actual literal vampire, sure. Like spend your billions on doing that. When somebody like Jeff Bezos or Peter Thiel talks about long-term thinking, I mean, it's hard for people to believe it but they really are taught i mean bezos as far as i know is talking about that basically a vision of that movie elysium where all the rich people are on the space station orbiting the earth which has become just like a sulfurous pit yeah a giant slum (laughs) and and they live forever and have everything that they could ever want and they and they never have to be bothered by the pores yeah i mean that that is exactly. <laughs> what they are proposing for the future and a lot of people are still like yeah. going along with it because it sounds cool to them i guess or maybe they imagine that they would be on the space station and not on the global slum yes everyone who is on board with this vision with this this future of limitless uh resources of you know the way that this is always you know so oh okay so we have now Billions of immortal people, what are we going to do? And the answers that you always get are, well, you know, we're going to be just in this future of abundance because we'll 3D print food and there'll be universal basic income and uh, asteroids will kill, we'll, we'll mine asteroids for diamonds and like, okay. <laughs> so people who foresee this future see themselves in that, you know, the new 1%, yeah. which is the off-world colonies, right? Exactly. The immortal space aliens who are exploiting the resources. That you, I mean, could you could you dr- dr- sketch out a, a more stereotypical comic book villain? I know. I know. But they really do take so many of those visions as real as well. Like, so many of these people and... Like, you know it because you've been sort of up in the extropians a lot as well. Um, but a lot of those people in the transhumanist milieu, which includes Peter Thiel, like, he is 
probably the world's most powerful transhumanist, take these visions from science fiction. Yeah. That's where they are taking these ideas that they hope to make real from. Like why it reads like a sci-fi novel is because they are trying their hardest to make sci-fi novels real. And it's just such a like sort of denial of the basic stuff of life, like even to the point of a, a, a complete denial of your human body for all of its failings. Like they see the body as a machine yeah. that can be hacked to perfection, even though it is just like a mess of biology that we don't know, that we don't get really, that, you know, we've done our best to try and understand it, but mainly it's mysterious to science why things happen to our bodies the way they do. And it's just this sort of real repudiation of, of being a human. That's why they call it transhumanism. They want to become other. They want to become... They, they, they see the body as something that needs to be transcended because it's not good enough, because it doesn't allow you to live forever in some crazy space colony, basically. So there's a lot of strange ideas there. Seeing it go from being incredibly fringe, like so fringe you have to dig it out of the dark recesses of the internet, to being totally mainstreamed. I'm supposed to be finishing the edits on my book and it's been somewhat problematic to see people like Teal go from somebody who I was essentially trying to sound a cautionary note about, like, hey, this stuff is out there, you should all know then to having him be revealed as the mastermind of the destruction of Gawker media, then to have him be like yeah. a uh, yeah. a key sort of power broker for the Trump White House, which not a lot of people saw coming, yeah. especially two years out. Yeah. So it's, it's changed yeah. how I have to frame some of these topics because uh, the mainstreaming has happened much more rapidly than I thought. Uh, and, and particularly the mainstreaming of the dark side of... I mean, I, I'm of the mind that all of this transhumanism is very yeah. dark for the reasons that you've described, that it tends to see people as automatons walking around. There's something there's something that's like very yeah. unsettling about the transhumanist view of other people. <laughs> so I think it's all dark, but it's really the most extreme, like, like sociopathic version of it that has attained power. Yeah, and who would ever have thought that that would happen? Honestly, like watching the emergence, the emergence of of that influence at the literal highest levels of government now is feels like we're in our own dystopic novel, like here, like what? If it wasn't, if it wasn't Trump, if it wasn't Trump, I mean, the Democrats would have come in, and then they would have been advised by guys like Ray Kurzweil, who's like the centrist Democrat, you know, Quite transhumanist, possibly, maybe. and people of that ilk. So we're gonna get this medicine, whether we like it or not. It's just like who's gonna be delivering it. <laughs> I think, and like, I mean, you'd been writing about neo reactionaries. The, what we now refer to as the alt-right more broadly. You've been writing about that for so long, so many years now. And I sort of have thought for a long time that there's that real hard-right, almost fascistic tendency is really baked into transhumanism and crypto-libertarianism and where that all crosses over, which is this sort of... Like, we're looking back to people like the Extropians, the, like, the, the original... Oh, what was the mailing oh, list that, like, Julius... Yeah, there's some kind of crypto-hacker thing, yeah. The crypto... Um, oh, it's... Cypherpunks, that's right. The original cypherpunks. Um, which is where all of these, you know, ideas about, you know, Assange's idea of, of, of bringing down governments through radical transparency, as he likes to call it, that was all born there. And it's a really, really, really dark and really, really male. It's so myopic and it's so dark. And 
it's like it's just come out in all these different ways. You know, it came out through Gamergate. It came out through the, the horrible MRA PUA mashup of just misogyny. Like all of these ideas that have been festering in the dark parts of the web have come out in the main, and it's just like it's so sad. It's like that's what this <laughs> original kind of utopian vision of the internet it resulted in. This this is how it ended up. Is a, just a really really uh upsetting thing to realize you know like it could have gone in so many different ways but this is how it turned out with you know peter Thiel in the white house it's like holy crap i had a moment in san francisco where i was talking to a guy and, and he he revealed himself well first i revealed myself as a journalist and then he revealed himself as a gamer gator and he actually said unironically it's really about ethics and games journalism and i just i could not get out of that conversation <laughs> fast enough because like the basis yeah. we had to relate basically vanished as soon as he said that. I mean, I grew up playing Mario Brothers, you know. I I like I still like to play video games once in a while, but I don't understand. I don't understand how you could think that games journalism was a thing. There might be like three or four people doing it, <laughs> but it's always much like tech journalism in general, it's always been promotional. So the idea that like this is some yeah. great cause is just very strange and then the fact that you're they're overlooking what was basically like a targeted terror campaign against women for purely misogynistic reasons it's like yeah. if you can't accept that basic reality i don't even know how to yeah. start a conversation with you anyway i got off on that tangent about gamergate which i think was important oh yeah it was about how things are framed so like you, you were like how, how did we get to this point and i think yeah. part of it is because the tech press yeah. at a time when it was ascendant, you know, in like 2014-ish, 2013, yeah. used this language that was fed to it by the the neo-reactionary underground of Gamergate. It's like, what, and people just tuned it yeah. out. Like, what the hell is that? I tuned it out for a long time because it sounded just so stupid. It, and, and, and Gamergate was a, a term that the perpetrators of that harassment campaign came up with to describe what they were doing when if you uh looked at it like with a more uh, i hate to use this word objective sort of journalistic view you it was clear that what was happening was like a misogynistic uh assault advance advance oh com completely but so completely. few people bothered to do that and even the ones that did approach it that way you know gawker they still referred to it as gamergate so they were advancing the uh, the PR at the same time they were trying to criticize it, which is, you know, that's just yes. a sign. That's a symptom, symptomatic weakness of the American press in general, I think. But it, it rem also, this point reminds me of something that you mentioned earlier about you were praising uh, FT Alphaville's reporting on Uber, Amazon, was it? And how these tech monop, you know, yeah. the big unicorns are, you know, built on bullshit, essentially. But look what, ha look what happens now, I don't know who it was at Alphaville that you were referencing. I know that Isabella Kaminska, I want to say her name is. She's really she's really good. Yeah. I follow her stuff. Yeah, she's amazing. But look she's what, been on it. Look what she's been on it forever. Look what happens she's when really like good. somebody with real journalistic chops or training or whatever it is, instincts, gets on the case of one of these tech companies. It instant or or it, it, as was the case in Gamergate when some you know, good reporters finally started digging into it. You're like, oh my God, I can't believe what's happening here. It is. Yeah. 
or like Theranos yeah. finally uh, being brought down because one right, one single exactly. reporter decided to be critical and brought down a whole entire bullshit company just by saying, hey, you know what? There's no proof for what they're saying. That's the best <laughs> one example. Single person. All he did was like yeah. investigate what they said their product was and, w- and whether it was actually possible. And we went from there. Whereas you had guys like Ken Aletta, you know, writing in the New Yorker, this fawning profile of Elizabeth Holmes. It's like embarrassing to see a magazine that's held in such a high regard as the New Yorker and a, and a and one of their star writers who's been around for decades, like the kind of guy that gives journalism school lectures and stuff like that, come out with such uh, what was should have been obvious at the time to be a PR piece, a puff piece, you know, uh, and and all of those com- all of those yeah. companies got that. Treatment. I know, and still do, and, and most of the time because the you know the the PR is is very powerful and the tech press itself going back to you know the original conception of wired magazine which is probably where this began they weren't interested in critical takes and because that was the really really big masthead that sort of set the tone for a super long time and it's only really the last few years maximum like i would say what three years three since valleywag really that there began to be a real critical reappraisal of these business models of a very male-centric world of really uncritical coverage of of silicon valley which was so incestuous like it was you know people would be you know supposedly reporters and then they would go and they would do pr directly for companies and then they would go back to being reporters and it's like this is not how you achieve objectivity at all and it's always been predicated on access. It's always been access journalism. And it's always also been service journalism, really. It's been about, you know, assess this service. What kind of email yeah. client should I use? What's the new hardware that's coming out? Which which, uh, which office suite is the best bang for the buck? Sponsored by Microsoft. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Which internet-enabled fridge should I get brought to you by (laughs) LG? You know, like, this was not, like, a foundation of rigorous investigative reporting. That was not what what that entire scene, press scene, was based on. And so it becomes sort of really chummy and really clicky. And you see it in entertainment reporting is the same. You know, like, there's anything that's predicated on access that's not going to be easy for a lot of people to burn their access and take critical takes, which is why it's so often people coming right from the outside of that. People who are people who are outside the scene who come in and do harsh reporting like with Theranos. They're not in the bubble. They don't care about maintaining relationships in it. That's how it should be. And so when someone comes along and does that, it's devastating for a company that has been pulling the wool over the eyes of investors and, you know, the public and gullible reporters. Like it's just yeah, it's uh, been bad. <laughs> it's been a bad I'd scene, say it, but I think the tide feels like it's changing massively. Did you say Wired specifically? or I think there's a lot more critical oh. report. No, not Wired specifically. Um, I mean, I think they've just done a bunch of great hires, though. Like, they've got a lot of smart women in there now. They've got people who are known for, for, for a critical stance, and that's really encouraging. But there's other places that... Uh, very critical and that's their whole thing and they wouldn't have been existed four or five years ago because it just wouldn't have been possible people just would have like blackballed them not talked to them told them not to give them yeah. whatever you know and now it's like hey 
so much of this stuff that we're living with as a result of of giving these like totally uncritical appraisals of Silicon Valley has has created a really bad place. It's created Gamergate. It's created Uber. It's created Amazon. It's all part of the same history. And taking it apart is going to be really difficult, but there's a lot of people now who are doing really good work, and I think that, you know, there's reason to be hopeful that there's good... I mean, Amazon is the scariest one in some ways because of, you know, Bezos now owns, like, one of the top two establishment press organs, in addition to being, like, a huge bookseller who is not afraid to uh, have ensure that a book is buried for personal petty vindictive reasons you know all that is sort of out there and established now i don't know that it was personally him uh but remember when that biography that was like somewhat unauthorized or he had a following out with the author came out and it was also uh i think at the time it coincided with some kind of uh business dispute with the, the big publishers and essentially amazon whoever at amazon uh perhaps it was just the algorithms like the catch-all excuse whenever a tech company does something bad uh made sure that the book was on page like three yeah uh, when you search for jeff bezos or whatever it was i mean like so a lot of writers are scared of that company on that level and the other companies um there's this new dynamic now where you never know as a journalist like your next boss might be a tech person and i think there's still like i, I agree there's more critical reporting happening now but that hesitancy is still there. And, you, and you're also absolutely right about the sort of promotional origins of the tech press and, and why that created a toxic legacy for decades. There was plenty of like very sharp and compelling academic writing about the tech business. There's a guy called Joseph Weizenbaum, who was an MIT professor of computer science, and he wrote some really smart books about how... I mean, basically, he called a lot of what has happened since the worst tendencies of the tech industry because uh, he saw he saw the seeds of it. One of the things that he wrote about is there should never there were some uses of computers that were simply immoral. And and one one example that he used was like uh, like simulated psychiatrist, like a, a chat bot. Basically, we would now call it a chat bot that did therapy for Reasons that are not really worth getting into here. He, he deemed it essentially an immoral invention. But you can go on like Product Hunt and see like 200 different apps for this exact application. Uh, another one that he mentioned was like he, like a brain machine interfaces. Like he, he basically deemed as like the only use for, for this kind of thing would ultimately be like slavery essentially like to reinstitute slavery through some kind of computerized automated method and it should never be done and yet where like all the big tech companies are kicking in to fund research in that area they fund prizes you know every six months or so there's a new video out about like some poor rat has like wires in its brain and they're staring it around with a joystick i mean this shit though about our brains being like a computer just kills me. This is such bad biology. Like if you talk to any neurobiologist, anyone who works with an actual squishy human brain and say to them, you know what? I think the brain is most like a computer. They're just going to be like, please get out of the building and then out of the suburb. Like <laughs> imagine a world, very difficult, but just imagine a world where we never invented the computer. What is a human brain? 
oh, it's a brain. Yeah. You know, there's, there's nothing to say that there is an adequate analogy to be drawn between the supposed computations of synapses and a computer. Like this has been this, you know, again, a techno-futurist, a, a very mathematical, a very engineering, like to, the idea of looking at problems of biology as if they were problems of engineering is such a fallacy. And it's typical of the fallacy of people who are very gifted, very, very, very smart in one area, say computational science, thinking that that then crosses over to them being also geniuses of biology when they have zero. Really hate this. I, could, I, <laughs> I hate this idea so much. I could rant about this for hours because, you, you know, this sort of, I, I actually think that the, the reactionary attitudes that you see coming out of tech have to do essentially with the the binary logic at the core of computing. That is an an argument which you could never broach in the tech press. I mean, you know, may, maybe you, you would get little token Luddite column <laughs> like once or twice in MIT Tech Review or something like that. Uh, but it's something that, that Weizenbaum and others wrote about, you know, 40, 50 years ago, they said this is a, this way of forcing everything into a, a software uh, program with a set of predetermined outcomes. It doesn't increase choice. It limits choice. That's the whole point of computing, right, is to pare down your options into an inorganic list, essentially. And that is like, that is the ideology that these companies have taken and are applying now to the planet. Like when Google talks about organizing the world's information, right? Like it's their mission to organize the world's information. That means reorganizing the world to fit their computer program. It's so reductive and it's so appealing to a lot of people who are very solution oriented, who believe that like the, just, and this is part of transhumanism as well. It's baked right into it, which is that, People refuse to accept that there are hard physical limits to life. There's hard physical laws that impose limits on physics that mean that we'll never be able to live in space, say. That's yeah. one of them. There's people who just refuse to accept this. They just refuse to accept the limitations of being a human being. And I find it so... It gives me a, a horrible feeling. Like, it's it's like a rejection of our humanity. And it's a really, it gives me a horrible feeling that the idea that we should, you know computerize everything that we should meld with machines like great you want to do that i suppose go for it don't force it on the rest of us as some kind of like vision that we should all be pursuing as if it's worthy you know and it's not something that can happen in the isolation of a laboratory it's something that can only happen with the resources of the state um which is really what underwrites all this like corporate profit right it's all like government r&d privatized and then turn into, you know, disruptive profit engines. So, you know, transhumanism, transhumanism is like, this kind of ties to what we're talking about earlier. In some ways, it is the state ideology, because none of the advances that are going toward building this idea of the future uh, are possible without massive public investment, um, or at least, you know, redistribution that allows private corporations to have like an outsized share of the wealth that they, they, they would not be able to come up with the, the uh, joystick controlled rat without the resources of the defense department, NASA, 
you know, National Institutes of Health, uh, not 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 to mention the the university <laughs> yeah. network. So it, it, that that's. But they think that they can replace all of these things. They think that they think that that, that their private corporations can replace and do better. Literally every single thing that you just mentioned. And this is, you know, the, like, teal idea of this corporate city-state with this opt-in CEO who runs the country. You know, that's literally the the vision of a lot of neo-reaction. Like, a lot of these people who work in machine learning are really attracted to this idea of city-states where the government is completely done away with by a private company. And they all say, you know who would be great? Elon. We should just get Elon to be, like, CEO of America. It's like, let me just commit suicide now rather than live under that. Like... Why do you think that this is a good idea for everybody else? And which again comes back to what we were talking about of this like, you know, really flagrant worship of the free market, which has led to that, which has led to that being some person's dream is now to be lauded over by a CEO, to have this kind of like daddy figure who provides for you, who tells you what to do, who keeps you safe, supposedly, by keeping unwanted people out of this opt-in techno future city state. And they are a corporate CEO. That's who these people want to be in charge of them. Well, look at their, I mean, so if you, if you spent time in (laughs) Silicon Valley, you realize that they're, they're essentially describing their day-to-day life in the office and out of the office. Because for those workers, there's not any meaningful distinction anymore. Like what they're describing, what they're describing as desirable is in many ways, the way that they already live and, and relate to their employer you know, the, the products they produce. It's, it's really interesting um, to see the beginnings of like a labor movement in tech. Uh, and w- I've gone to some, some meetings very sparsely attended, but, you know, people talk about how, you know, software engineers are completely divorced. They, they, have, they have such little control over their work in terms of how it's done and how it's used. And... You know, I try to think about that in relation to my own work as a writer or journalist. And, and the thing that's always appealed to me about it is, is having a high degree of control. I, and I've, limit, I, I've limited my career options by favoring, you know, places where I would maybe get paid less or have a smaller audience but would have more control. And to think about the way that a, a software engineer has to go about his or her job, usually his job, uh, is... You know, almost every minute is tracked. Like how you produce your code is dictated. The end product, the goal, is set by somebody else, like maybe in another department, who you'll never be able to challenge. You are essentially like already a robot. It it, it adds a layer of creepiness when people, you know, praise this idea of like a national CEO or something. Because you look at how some of these people, I mean, they have money and they're comfortable, but like it doesn't to me, look like a satisfying life. No, and so many of them at the absolute top are just paranoid, you know, like like Teal and, you know, they are obsessed with prepping. They are obsessed with the end of the world. They are obsessed with fortifying themselves in some faraway high-security castle of their own making. So this all feeds back into this same poisonous, libertarian, like crypto-libertarian, individualistic, self-obsessed, myopic just nightmare world that they they want to live in this is the world that they think is great pretty much everyone else is going to be burning in the apocalypse and they're going to be holed up with their virtual reality headsets in new zealand 
you know, it's just, it's just bonkers. And it's, you know, more and more normalized and those people are getting more and more press coverage. And that's really dark to me. But to, to, to go back to the, to what you're saying about the programmer, the, the, the most ironic thing I think in most, in a lot of this is that one of the most likely automated industries in that it's possible for artificial computer intelligence to take over the job of anyone more than anyone else is a computer yeah. programmer. Like there's going to be the computer program, the code that can write itself better, faster, more perfectly than a human is going to be the fi- the first thing that we see. We're going to see that way before we ever see a fleet of self-driving cars that will never exist. We're going to see a computer program that can write and improve itself. And, you know, people are always like freaking out about how the computer one go so much more quickly this year or the computer one chess so much more quickly this year. It's like, yeah, it should be very, very good at solving math problems. That's what it does. That's what it can do. And so the irony of all of these people working in this field to build the underlying code of automation technologies, the thought that their jobs might go first is quite funny. There is some satisfying irony in that. Also, people don't realize how much code, especially for like the, you know, you see less of these, you know, overnight wonder startups, but people don't realize how much of the code for these things is copy pasted anyway. You know, it's completely plausible. Yeah, it's completely plausible to me that, uh, you know, those would be the first jobs to be automated out of existence because there's nothing that uh obviously as some of the reporting that like mark ames did for pando on the wage theft conspiracy essentially in silicon valley there's obviously nothing that the tech companies would like to get rid of more than their hundred and twenty thousand dollar a year stanford grad engineers yeah exactly (laughs) exactly if they could just get a machine to do it they're gonna do it as soon as they can i i i'm also a skeptic on the cars thing i there's a huge push for this, and I think it's because um, these companies need to show growth, and it, it sounds plausible to investors, so they're going to keep pouring a bunch of money into it and get demo projects off the ground. And it's it's one of those things where it's if, if it were ever possible, it's so far away that people are able to say, oh, look, you know, we're definitely working towards it, and it's definitely happening. And it falls right into that little fallacy valley where it's like, well, you can't say that it's not going to happen. Well, you, you could actually say it's not going to happen because I would like to know where these fleets of autonomous driving cars are scaled up to the testing point of taking over our freeways. Like at what point do you integrate the odd self-driving car in with everyone else who's driving their regular old person-driven car? Like you have to have a shadow set of roads that runs parallel to the roads that we already have on which you're going to run these supposed fleets and iron out every single possible problem with them, which are hundreds. There's hundreds and hundreds of problems that would have yeah, to be solved. Yeah, but they're not... Not least of which at the moment is, how do you stop them from being remotely hijacked? They're not... They're not you know they're not going like to the do that. Of, they're going to... The internet of shit. They're going to put these things on the road without tests. I mean, that's the whole fail-fast thing, right? Like, we can iterate if there's a that's problem. That's not going to happen. But the regulators are letting... The it's regulators very, are going to let them get away with it. They're totally going to let them do it. Man, I don't think... So. I think that this is the one time where that's not going to happen because the the level of risk is so high and the potential for fatality is so high. The potential for people to sue the city, to pe- for people to sue the state because they allowed a self-driving car onto the road and then it killed the whole family. You know, I, I think that you, it's, it's one thing to fail fast at, like, I don't know, Facebook social engineering, which is also terrible. 
But when you're when you're in something like high impact traffic accidents and the more self-driving cars there are, the higher the likelihood of those accidents happening becomes, you are going to see that city ordinance is going to crack down and say, you know what, you can't just go and test out your death trap among other people's also death traps, but at least they have a degree of control over them. Like, I don't want to share the road with untested autonomous cars. I'm, I'm... And I don't think most drivers do. <laughs> I, I like you. I'm also terrified of American roads. I, I actually have to go to another city for a baffler piece tomorrow. And, you know, I'm going to take the train and make it an overnight when I, if I were to rent a car, I could probably do it in a single day. But you just, but yeah. I, you know, I haven't been a regular driver for a long time, and it, and it's scary. People drive like fucking lunatics, and there's oh, fifty thousand highway deaths. You know, like I keep I keep thinking like, okay, whatever anxiety I have about this is is irrational. I'm just stressed out. I need to calm down. It's totally fine. But actually, if you think about it, just in terms of pure numbers, it's the most rational thing you could possibly be afraid of. Is like any any yeah, asphalt ribbon with more than two lanes in it is more likely to kill you than anything else you're going to encounter day to day. Absolutely, it's a completely rational and proven fear. It's an incredibly dangerous thing to do to drive a car. It's true, but self-driving cars aren't going to be this magical solution to that that people think that they're going to be. Uh, no, the um, email doesn't even work. They I, can't I think... even come up with a good email client. They can't even like come up with a calendar that syncs. <laughs> I don't know how long we had email and it's still shit. <laughs> I don't know. The cars. I was in a, I was in a computer, computer history museum in Mountain View and they had a, a Google car there as a demo. And it's like it's got this LiDAR thing basically that helps it see by casting a, essentially radar type beams out. But it's got like a 10 foot blind spot around the car that it can't see. Oh, yeah. And it's like, well, it doesn't seem like that's <laughs> yeah. an important place for it to be able to see. I'm sure they've got some backup thing to let it know when something's close. You know, I'm sure they thought of that. But it's stuff like that that makes you go like, how how ready is this stuff? How? <laughs> I think something conceivably that could happen would be that you do see an automation of long-haul truck routes along very straight roads on which it'll be illegal to drive. It'll be like this, these, this, these roads are for autonomous freight trucks and freight trains only. Human beings are not allowed to drive. Yeah, because there's... That's a possibility. There's nothing that... Um, that, that there's nothing happen. America needs more right at this moment in history than like 10 million unemployed truckers. Mass unemployment. That's, 10 million yeah, angry yeah. truckers with guns. Truckers, That's what we need. Not only not only would it be unemployed truck drivers, but every single ancillary business that services them along the route. Yeah. So gas stations, diners, and everything along traditional truck driving routes would also die when there was no people driving them anymore. So that increases the millions by a lot more than just the truck drivers. Yeah, but so but then you're going to have problems with like, what's how are you going to patrol these routes to stop them from being hijacked? Like, you know, if, you, if someone's like, oh, great, there's a freight train that just goes for like 180 miles through desert and there's no one in it. Let's figure out how to so hijack what, it. There's going to be no one out there. To stop what you're us. saying is you don't need you an know? apocalypse to bring about the Mad Max future. You just need these horrific dystopian companies working toward their idea of utopia. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. They'll, it'll. Yeah. Working towards their idea of putting millions of people out of work. Yeah. <laughs> what a glorious future. I'm, I'm, 
And then they'll also come with that great circular reasoning, which is like, well, you know, people who drive trucks, they hate it. And so they'll be free to go pursue other opportunities and just make other things of themselves. It's like, well, you know what? Not everyone has the socioeconomic opportunity to do there's that. A, there's a... There's a tremendous, I mean, there's a huge class bias in this because like the, the, the people you're talking about that lead these companies and by and large that work at them um, are middle class suburbanites. And that also applies to like, you know, the, the H1B workers from India, uh, like these, these, like the Indian workers that come to the U.S. are from, by and large, like relatively wealthy families from the Indian context. They have a similar outlook in terms of like, uh, you know, what, what uh, life choices are available to a person. So even this idea that we started out talking about that Amazon is going to retrain its warehouse workers for robotics and stuff like that. It's so, it's so divorced from the reality of the lives of people in the working classes that, uh, it it would be funny if it weren't just completely tragic. No, completely. And I mean, it's always pitched this way. Like these ideas of disruption are always pitched this way as solving problems for, you know, the less socially and economically mobile people who just don't realize it yet that they've been given this great opportunity that's now coming for them. And it just is not interested in addressing the actual systemic problems of economies that have created that class in the first place. You know, like it's always just coming at something from the completely the wrong way. And it's because, like you say, the majority of people working in those fields and creating those industries don't come from the working class. They have no idea what it's like. Yeah, they benefited. They they benefited from the way things are, you know. Like they they are they are the people who you know, essentially, unlike a lot of people who sort of play by the rules and do everything they're supposed to do, go to school, you know, get a job, try to work hard and make something of yourself. Like most people, that doesn't work. But if you are in the software industry, you know, particularly as an engineer, uh, it's worked for you over the last 20 years. And you never had any, like... any experience to the contrary that would lead you to think that maybe other people don't have these advantages or the same sort of choices. And I think that goes to the ped- the pedagogy of engineering programs. I wish, you know, I thought it, it's a little too dry for me to write about it. I wish somebody would write about it. Um, it's also hard to find out about it, like unless you're a graduate or you interview a lot of graduates. But like, what exactly do you learn about the humanities or other disciplines if you're in say a stanford engineering course or mit engineering course or even just like the local community college programming course i think i think that the the arrogant the arrogance that you were talking about a lot of it i think comes from the lack of a broad education that yeah and we know that there's no ethics taught there like that came out you know around the election where there was a bunch of academics pushing programmers to sign a statement of ethics because they had put zero thought into how the algorithms that they wrote and the software programs that they developed could be used by other people. Like, oh, this vast data surveillance harvesting network that I created could be used for nefarious purposes by the government. Oh, never thought about that because ethics is not taught at all. 
in an engineering degree, in a programming degree. And maybe that's going to be something that changes. Someone who does amazing work in that area is Kate Crawford. Um, she's at um, NYU and MIT, and she's been talking about this for years, for like years, going, hey, <laughs> harvesting all of this data, that's bad, <laughs> because, hey, they can use it however they want. And that, that's incredibly obvious, but like she, when she first started sort of talking about that sort of stuff, she found it really hard to get traction for her, um, for her ideas. And which also goes back to what you were saying earlier about there having always been very good academic writing about transhumanism, about what we now know of as the alt right, about these darker recesses of you know, uh, I guess techno libertarian thought and how that ties into programming, how that's all part of the same fabric. Um, has been written about academically for a lot of years, and now I think that there's there's sort of a more, much more broader awareness. Like a lot, you know, the average person I think now would know that they need to be much more vigilant with how they protect their their private data and their information on the internet. Whereas even five years ago, people be like, "What? I have no idea what you're talking about." So that's I encouraging. I still don't think that. I, I I think there's more, but I still think it's basically single digit percentages of people that are aware about that stuff. I mean, yeah. I can't even, you know, I've, I've been doing some reporting on, like, basically, you know, online neo-Nazi movements coming offline and having rallies and, you know, threatening people. And I've, I've talked to people who've been threatened and, you know, once their name is public or known to these groups, I'm like, you got to lock down your Facebook. you got to, you know, you got to take these steps to protect yourself or, you know, you're going to have your identity stolen, basically, and you're going to be telephonically harassed and all of it. But people just like they don't quite get it or they feel that, you know, to have a open social media profile is so important to their life. That is just something that they have to bear. Um, so, you know, that's another area where these engineers didn't think of consequences. And now that the, the problems are apparent, um, have no interest in solving them. I mean, you know, Twitter's harassment problem. Like, uh, why does this keep happening? Why don't they seem interested in banning, you know, uh, Nazis who threaten people's lives for more than three hours at a time? Uh, I still well, they don't, don't want their numbers it. to go down. They don't want yeah. their numbers to go down. They can't. Yeah. How many, you know, what percentage of users are trolls on Twitter? Like, like it's probably so double. Yeah. <laughs> if they were, if they were to take the problem seriously, they'd have a dip in their growth. And then, you know, they're already on shaky you know foundation as far as wall street is concerned uh what happens then as soon as they have a down quarter or two down quarters because they took uh you know harassment seriously finally the company's over yeah and that's much more it's much more important to prioritize profits over people's safety we all know that from our time on the internet this is america (laughs) i know oh my god it's why i had to leave yeah uh oh yeah so why did why did you leave where did i leave um i left because i wanted to freelance i didn't want to be on staff i didn't want to be in new york um and i wanted to be somewhere that was affordable and somewhere that would let me have more uh control over my life control over my life in terms of the the sort of work that i was able to do because I had and have um, much reduced financial pressure um, living in Mexico than living in the United States. And I just, as a foreigner, um, 
there's a lot about American society that's just so harsh and very, very, very yeah. cutthroat, very, very cutthroat and very, very, you know, just, just the nightmare that is health cover in your country. I take completely for granted having grown up somewhere with universal free health care. Like I just completely took it for granted growing up in Australia. And I look back now and I'm like, holy shit, I grew up in a socialist paradise. Um, and those things about, about Australia, America. the socialist paradise, <laughs> well, maybe I the mean, most we... American country in terms of attitudes and, you know, uh, yeah. right wing outlook, uh, in government anyway, apart from America, maybe the I UK know. would be up there too, but compared to the that, US, yeah, it is. Yeah. And it was yeah, founded healthcare. on much more egalitarian. Like, I mean, the union movement is still powerful in Australia and, you know, that was a huge part of the founding of the country, but yeah, the the sort of the sort of the cutthroat nature of life in New York was really not for me. Um, I had to go there to find that out, and I did. And I live in a beautiful little beach town, uh, and it's a much happier life. <laughs> it's, a, it's a much happier life for me than um, than it was sort of you know being caught up in the incredible. Um, alpha competitiveness i'm not a competitive person but yeah like seeing seeing how difficult life is for a vast 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 number of americans um socioeconomically seeing you know so many uh completely depressed towns and just just seeing the 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 breadth of of life um was really eye-opening to me especially when you are a foreigner who grows up on a certain image that is projected outwardly through popular culture. So, so leaving it behind as a place to live, I felt was the right decision for me because I just find like the inequality is really confronting to a degree that just like absolutely wrecked me. Like it really changed me as a person seeing so much stuff like that. Seeing poverty in America really messed me up. Um, so like was, what was yeah, the, what was, what's, what sticks out in your mind as like the the, well, just, the horrors of uh, you know American uh, uh, well, cruelty like, I mean, thing, the poor? Th- the fact that that something like Skid Row exists that there is a a ten block by ten block shanty town where law enforcement are afraid to go basically have just abandoned it all social you know any kind of form of social security welfare net is just gone for people in a major city like Los Angeles is just insanity. It's so insane. Or if you're in Washington, DC, the seat of power in America, and you're like stepping over the most endemic homelessness you can imagine. And that people are left to fend for themselves. Like the hatred of poor people is so confronting. I mean, the Brits, I, I, you know, I, I make fun of them, but they do have a, uh, looking out for each other uh, as a sort of a core value. Um, whereas in America, it's look out for number one, you know? I mean, you just can't exactly. get this baked, it's baked in. It's very individualistic. It's always been that way, though. Like, you know, there's always been that sort of real, you know, the worship of the lone, the person who goes it alone and makes it on their own. And that's sort of, you know, that's held up as the the, the aspirational figure. And that's really And it's harsh. basically... <laughs> it's really that, harsh. That's, the, that's Silicon Valley too, right there. I mean, that's yeah. the whole, that's the myth, mythos. Uh, it's identical to the sort of American mythos going all the way back to the founding of the country. You know, it's probably a good place to wrap it up. Thanks, Corey.
Yeah, later, Elmo. That was Elmo Keep. Thank you, Elmo. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, dear listeners. Catch you in a couple weeks on News From Nowhere. Corey Pine, goodbye from Portland.